my name's Erin, and first we're going to start by reading from Deuteronomy, chapter 32, verses 28. They are a nation without sense. There is no discernment in them. If only they were wise and would understand this and discern what their end would be. How could one man chase a thousand, or two put ten thousand to fight? Unless their rock has sold them, unless the Lord has given up, given them up. For their rock is not like our rock, as even our enemies concede. Their vine comes from the vine of Sodom, from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are filled with poison, and their clusters with bitterness. Their wine is the venom of serpents, the deadly poison of cobras. Have I not kept this in reserve and sealed it in my vaults? It is mine to avenge. I will repay in due time, their foot will slip. Their day of disaster is near and their doom rushes upon them. The Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants. When he sees their strength is gone and no one is left, slave or free. And then from Romans 12 verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fever. Serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Thanks, Aaron, and uh, thank you, Bob, as well. No one's ever described me as being user-friendly before, so I'll take that as a compliment. Uh, good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you this morning. My name is Mark. If we haven't met, there's quite a few of you that I haven't met yet. I'm still trying to recognise everyone's name, um, faces, connect them with names underneath the face mask. So please don't be offended if we've met before and I've forgotten your name. Um, I had a year 11 chemistry teacher back in the day called Dr. Stoltz. Now, he was, he was a very memorable teacher, very, very quirky. No class with Dr. Stoltz was ever boring at all. He was a, a teacher who would share his opinions openly on a whole range of topics. Uh, he had this little thing where sometimes he'd be writing on the whiteboard and, it, and he'd just keep writing and write on the, the walls if he ran out of whiteboard space. That was his little joke that he did. Um, there were rumours that he would even throw things like retort stands at students who behaved badly. Um, so it was a, never a dull moment. Uh, but at the end of that year, I, I wasn't very good at chemistry, so dropped it at the end of year 11. And I just assumed that I'd probably never have anything to do with Dr. Stoltz ever again. Good year to have with him, but wouldn't have much to do with him. Uh, but I was wrong. 
over the last few years, we've actually reconnected quite a bit, Dr. Stokes and I. We've done, done a few things together. He comes around for dinner a bit. He helped us move house recently. Something happened a few years ago that, that transformed my relationship with Dr. Stokes forever, and that was that I married his daughter. It, it changed, changed everything. And in a similar way, Romans chapter 12 shows us that we can have transformed relationships. We can have transformed relationships with God, with one another, and even with our enemies. And it's the first, the first 11 chapters of Romans that have set the scene for why these transformed relationships, relationships transformed by sincere love, are possible. Uh, now, the Apostle Paul, who's writing this letter, he, tell, he begins the, the letter of Romans by telling us the, the big problem that humans face, what the Bible calls sin. And because of sin, no one is righteous. That is, no one is able to, to stand before God completely clean. No one is able to live the way that God wants us to. And the reason for that is that at a deep heart level, we want to live for ourselves so we don't, we don't treat God as we ought to, we reject him, which means that God ought to reject us as well. That's the bad news that Romans, Romans tells us. But the good news is that even though no one is righteous on our own, God has made a way for us to be righteous in his sight. And he's done that by sending his own son, Jesus, to die in our place, to take the judgment that we deserve. And this is what the Bible calls the gospel message. It means that if I believe this, if I trust in Jesus, trust that, that he's died for me, it completely changes who I am. I'm now united with Jesus. I'm acceptable to God. In fact, not just that, but I am an adopted child of God. I have God's spirit at work in me. And as we heard last week from Stephen, I'm part of a body as well, along with everyone else who has put their trust in Jesus. We also heard last week how, in view of God's mercy to us, which, we, which has been unpacked through the first 11 chapters of Romans, we are to live our lives in worship of him as living sacrifices. And so we live for God in response to his mercy for us. And this new identity that we have impacts our relationships. Now, now first we, we read through... Uh, Romans chapter 12, and it just feels like a long, heavy list of commands that we have to obey, doesn't it? Love God, love, love your neighbors, all that sort of thing. But what it actually is, is a beautiful picture of transformed relationships, relationships that have been transformed by righteousness. Uh, now, in verse 9, Paul begins by telling us, love must be sincere. And as we, we heard very well explained up the front, that's, what that means is that love is, is genuine. It's not hypocritical. It's not fake. It's not an act that we put on. It's real. It's from the heart. And this morning, we're going to look from Romans chapter 12 at what it means to, to have this sort of sincere love for God, for one another, and even for our enemies. Now, so if you're here this morning, you're someone who is, you've put your trust in Jesus as your, as your Lord. The question to ask as we look at this passage is, am I letting what I know about Jesus shape every part of my relationships? Now, I don't ask a question like that trying to weigh you down and, and feel guilty or anything like that, but more, 
more to help us experience the joy and the depth of relationships that Jesus makes possible for us. If you're here this morning just checking church out, working out who Jesus is and and what it's all about, great that you're here, really glad that you're with us this morning. The question to ask for you is, is this passage talking about the sorts of relationships that I want? That's that's the question to think through. Uh, So first point is sincere love for God. Have a look at verse 11. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Serving God doesn't come naturally to us at all. So if, if we rewind right back to chapter 1 of Romans, we'd see that Paul paints this really devastating picture right at the start about how sin affects our hearts and our lives. He tells us that people exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. And so to, to serve God... It shows that a change has taken place in our hearts. And this is joyful service, Paul says, full of zeal. The only way we can genuinely love God with this sort of attitude is by grasping at a heart level, down deep, what God has done for us. See, the gospel transforms our relationship with God. As we understand it more and more deeply, it brings us joy and vibrancy. And not just that, but it helps us to cling to God during the tough times. Um, Verse 12, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Paul was writing this letter to a church that within a few years was going to be suffering horrific persecution um, under the Roman emperor at that time. Paul himself, he's not detached from this either. If we read the book of Acts, we see that Paul lived a life of tremendous suffering for the gospel. He went went through horrible things. And it's real for us as well, because all of us are going to suffer at some point in our lives. You you might be here this morning and, and you might be in the middle of a season like that right now. And everyone, no matter no matter what our worldview is, everyone wants to be able to cling to hope during those tough times, those times when things seem beyond our control. We, we want to be able to tell ourselves that everything will turn out okay. We want, to, we want to trust that everything happens for a reason. But what are we basing that on? The gospel gives us an answer to that. The gospel gives us a firm foundation for hope, even in the worst of circumstances. Because it tells us how the story ends. The story ends with us sharing in Jesus' glory. A glory that will make the worst of our sufferings in this lifetime seem like nothing. And not only that, but we have God's promise that he is using everything that happens in our life day by day to transform us, to make us more like Jesus. Nothing happens to us by accident. And so the gospel helps us to have a relationship with God that is marked by joy, patience, and faithfulness, even during trials, to live with sincere love for God in all seasons. And it's important to see that Paul tells us this right after reminding us in the first part of chapter 12, which we read last week, that we're all members of a body together. God uses the support and encouragement of other believers to to transform me 
Because it's, it's those times when, when I'm feeling spiritually dry, I'm feeling hopeless, afflicted, I'm, I'm finding it hard to pray. Those are the times when I most need the support of the other members of my body around me. So can I encourage you, if, if you're not already, to really commit strongly to being here each Sunday. And with the exception of those of you who are going on the Campbelltown plant, please don't commit to being here each Sunday. Commit to being at Campbelltown each Sunday. Um, not just that, but joining a community group, joining a youth group if you're in high school and committing to being there each week. Because being part of a body is a, it's a big way of how God grows us and nurtures us and uses us. Our sincere love for God happens in the context of transformed relationships with one another, which brings us to the second point in this passage, sincere love for one another. This one another love that, that Jesus is calling us into is one of sincere love. It's not something that can be faked. We can't just pretend. Have a look at what this life together looks like. It means being devoted to one another in love, honoring one another above ourselves. It means sharing with those in need, practicing hospitality, living in harmony with one another, being willing to associate with people of low position. And just think what a counter-cultural community it would be if all of these things were the norm. I can't think of another community that I've been part of that, that would mirror these things, that would reflect this passage. It would be an extraordinary thing to be a part of. And I say that because I know my own sinful nature. I know that, that deep in my heart there's greed, pride, envy, selfishness. That there are all sorts of ugly things that make this radical kind of love very unnatural for us. But again, it's the gospel that transforms our relationships and helps us to genuinely love one another in this way. Because if we've trusted in Jesus, then we'll look at other people who have trusted in Jesus as well and we'll recognize that together we are united in Christ. We're part of a body together, brothers and sisters. Jesus died for each of us. God's spirit is inside each of us, transforming us day in, day out. Seeing each other in light of the gospel, it helps us to sincerely love one another. Now, if you're here this morning and if you're someone who hasn't yet chosen to follow Jesus, then, then you might be thinking, well, hang on. Are you trying to say that I don't sincerely love people? Are you saying that someone who hasn't trusted Jesus can't sincerely love people? Um, that's not what I'm saying. But all, I, all I'm saying is that having a shared identity in Jesus, it unites us in a way that nothing else can. It changes the nature of our relationship in a, in a supernatural and everlasting way. Verse 15 takes us, takes us really right to the heart of genuine love. Rejoice with those who rejoice, Paul says. Mourn with those who mourn. Now, that's hard. Ultimately, you, you can't act that out. You can't just pretend that. Um, to rejoice with those who rejoice, we need to have a love that is strong enough to overcome our own jealousy. Now, it's easy to be happy for someone who has something that I have or that I don't really care about, but 
it's a lot harder when it's something that we want for ourselves. Uh, so a few years back before Rory arrived, Alicia and I lost our first baby, had a, had a miscarriage. And I have to say, it was, it was really hard in the, in the months that followed being happy for people who announced that they were pregnant or, or people who had babies during that time. They, they were having something that, that we wanted so badly for ourselves. Very hard to rejoice with them at that time. Mourning with those who mourn. Well, for that, we need a love that is strong enough to overcome our own self-interest. A love strong enough to, to feel what that person grieving is feeling. Not just for, not just for a few days or, or a few weeks, but, but journeying with them in their grief. Their, their grief journey being ours. Only sincere love for a person will truly let us do that at a heart level. And so I want to focus a bit on the importance of hospitality because I think that in many ways, hospitality is a bit of an entrance point to a whole lot of other expressions of love that Paul mentions here. Uh, so in verse 13, Paul tells us to practice hospitality. And in the original language, it's, it's a bit more forceful than that. The word for practice is the same word as persecute in the next verse. So it's literally saying persecute hospitality, which gets a bit lost in translation. But you, you kind of get what it means. It's saying hospitality is really important. And it's not as daunting as we might think either. You don't have to be an amazing cook. You don't have to have a big house. In fact, in, until a couple of days ago, it didn't really matter how big your house was. You're only allowed 10 people inside it. You don't have to be a raging extrovert to be hospitable. Hospitality is it's about sharing life with one another. It's about creating the space to grow this devoted, selfless sincere love for one another and so i hope that for you church it's more than about just coming along and hearing a sermon and singing a couple of a couple of songs i hope that you come along each week wanting to share life together and not only with people that you know already but welcoming newcomers as well speaking to people that you you might not naturally speak to it's amazing how much of an impact hospitality can have on people who are visiting a church. I've lost track of the number of conversations I've had of people who have said that they, they've stayed at the church that they're at because people welcomed them the first week that they were there. Whether it's an invitation to lunch or whether it's chatting to them on that first Sunday and remembering their name the next Sunday, we can show hospitality in all sorts of ways. Paul tells the Roman church to share with those who are in need. And, and I think one of the great needs that people have today is community, connection, relationships, acceptance. We want people who walk through those doors over there to, to feel that as they come and join us, to, to receive that. We love our visitors and we love our regular members as well by coming to church with a, a mindset of hospitality ready to show genuine love to whoever God chooses to bring along that day. So sincere love for God, sincere love for one another. So far, it's a, it's a beautiful picture of church life. Uh, but things get trickier when we get to point three, which is sincere love for our enemies. Verse 14, Paul says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Verse 17, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Paul's concern that he's got here is how 
we respond to evil. Verse 21, the, the verse that he finishes up on here. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How does evil overcome us? Evil overcomes us when it causes us to respond with evil. When it causes us to insult the person who insulted us, to harm the person who harmed us. And Paul says to us in Romans chapter 12, there is another way, overcoming evil with goodness. Now, I don't think I have any enemies, at least not in the kind of literal book and movie, Harry Potter, Draco Malfoy kind of sense of the the word enemy. Um, But I have experienced evil against me. At times, and, and I'm sure we all have. I'm sure there are people here who have experienced evil in, in much worse ways than I have. Maybe you can think of people who are your enemies. Maybe it's the, the school bully. Maybe it's the work colleague who, who gives you a hard time and, and is destructive against you. Maybe there are uh, more severe cases where it's someone who has committed crime or abuse against you or, or against someone you love. In my limited experience, it's very hard to respond to evil with good. It's very hard. It's very hard to sincerely love our enemies. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Firstly, I think it's just our natural instinct to want retribution, isn't it? To want the person who has harmed us to experience that same harm that we did. I think that's part of, part of our normal human nature. And secondly, responding to evil with goodness, it just feels a bit weak, doesn't it? It feels a bit passive. It feels like we're letting them win. We're letting them walk over us. Love for our enemies isn't going to happen by accident. And again, it's the gospel that allows this transformed relationship, helping us to genuinely love our enemies. And it's the assurance that God will bring about true justice. Uh, In verse 19, Paul quotes from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. It was one of the the readings that that Aaron gave us. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written in Deuteronomy, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Now in the Deuteronomy passage, God was promising that that he would avenge any evil done to his people. Even Even though God's people had messed up and sinned against God, God was still going to vindicate them against their enemies. And it's a promise for us too, that we can trust God to judge rightly. Paul quotes another Old Testament passage in verse 20, telling us that instead of taking revenge, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. It's an Interesting turn of phrase there. I've, I've never had burning coals heaped on my head before, but, but I would imagine that it is quite a painful and distinctive experience. And in the same way, if, if you've ever treated someone badly and they've then treated you well, you'll know that it's a very shameful feeling, isn't it, when that happens? It's, it's, a, it's a painfully shameful feeling. And that's what Paul is getting at here. Treat your enemies, Paul says, with with such generosity that they will be ashamed. If, If they have any sense of conscience, they will be ashamed 
for how they have treated you. Uh, now, this is obviously a far bigger issue than I'll be able to deal with in a short time, but, but I just want to be 100% clear that responding to evil with good doesn't mean that we should submit ourselves to, to harm or abuse. Paul is telling us not to fight evil with evil, um, but, that's, but that's very different to uh, escaping an abusive situation and for seeking the appropriate channels of justice where they exist. So we can't take a passage like this and think that it either excuses abuse or it, ex- or it means that I simply have to put up with it. Um, now, that, that's a very complex area in itself. I'm happy to chat more if there are questions on that nature that anyone has, but I just want to be 100% clear on that. And of course, our ultimate example in loving our enemies and trusting in God's judgment is the Lord Jesus himself. Now, we read in the book of 1 Peter in chapter 2, when they hurled their insults at Jesus as he was dying on the cross for us, Jesus did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he trusted himself to him who judges justly. So we have Jesus as our example, not only as the one who saved us from being God's enemies, but but our example. And he has saved us from being God's enemies. He's reconciled us to God by his death. So if anything can change the way that we look at our own enemies... It's the relief of knowing that because of Jesus, we are no longer God's enemies. And so the gospel has transformed our relationships. It empowers us to love God, to love one another, and even to love our enemies genuinely, sincerely, from the heart. And if our vision is to be Not just one church, but two churches who are loving God, loving God's people and leading Adelaide's North to Jesus. Then we need to be a community of extraordinary and sincere love. And the beautiful message of Romans is that that is more and more who Jesus is transforming us to be.